There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Billy. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. I'm really excited about this episode because this is the start of our Twisted Prison series for October. And I can't think of a better way to kick things off than talking about this historic, architecturally significant haunted prison. Chicago gangster Alphonse Scarface Capone. Morris Bulber, a key member of Philadelphia's arsenic ring. Frida Frost, the last female inmate the infamous bank robber Slick Willie Sutton. These are just a few of the famous residents that called Eastern State Penitentiary home. The conception and development of Eastern State Penitentiary relied heavily on the changing landscape and culture of urban cities in the early to mid-1800s. Cities became institutionalized. Ordinances and standards were implemented on multiple businesses and industries. And the control over the less fortunate indigenous persons and criminals basically became an industry in and of itself. Poorhouses or almshouses, as they were also called, for less fortunate Victorians cropped up with a frenzy. The locations of these establishments were often placed just outside of city proper, keep them close enough to the city, where government can keep an eye on their operation, but far enough away from the city center so as not to offend the good men and women living therein. It was called good community life, exposing the ill, the infirm, the indigent, and the incarcerated to fresh air and restricting their access to the abhorrent temptations of the urban city. Getting the prison out of the city was a priority. Prior to Eastern State Penitentiary, the prison in Philadelphia was in Center City, it was overcrowded, and inmates had a habit of hanging out the windows to verbally assault unsuspecting passersby. Because most prisons in the 18th century were general admission, as in men and women, young and old, people accused of a broad diversity of crimes mixed and mingled in a common space. They were under lock and key, but they were all locked in together, like a mosh pit. It was unsafe for both the jailers and the jailed. In 1787, Ben Franklin met with an organization called the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons. That was a mouthful. This was a group of concerned citizens, most with some level of rank in society, like physicians, members of local government, and their goal was for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to set the gold standard for prisons in the United States. Dr. Benjamin Rush was one of the most outspoken members of the prison committee. When we talk about founding fathers, Rush should be pretty high up on that list. Not only was he a signer of the Declaration of Independence, he was a prominent physician who was also a professor at University of Pennsylvania and the Surgeon General of the Continental Army. Rush was the very first professor of chemistry in America when he was appointed chair of chemistry at the College of Philadelphia back in 1769, and he was only 23 years old. He helped organize the first anti-slavery society in this country, 
the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery, and the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage. I could do an entire episode just about Dr. Benjamin Rush, his accomplishments, his contributions to early American history, and I probably will, but that's not this episode. That being said, though, Rush was a prominent leader in Philadelphia. He was a local boy, born just outside the city in Byberry. He could also be called E.F. Hutton because when he talked, people listened. So having Rush at the head of the organization wanting to transform correctional institutions in America in the late 1700s meant shit would get done. Although it took close to 40 years after that initial meeting in 1787 to get shit done. When Pennsylvania was founded in 1682, the penal system in the state was based on the Quaker Criminal Code, instituted, of course, by our founding father, William Penn. The Quaker Code abandoned the idea of corporal punishment, except in the case of murder, and merged the prison with the workhouse. Imprisonment should be a combination of punishment and labor to prevent idleness, because we all know idle hands are the instrument of the devil. While Penn's Quaker sensibilities were the foundation for much of the laws in our state, they certainly didn't last forever. And by the mid-1700s, there were very few institutions resembling Penn's vision. Most of the county jails throughout Pennsylvania were traditional prisons focused solely on punishment and imprisonment. One prison in Philadelphia that tried to honor the Quaker criminal code was the Walnut Street Jail, which opened in 1773. For the first 10 to 15 years, it was solely a prison, a place of incarceration and idleness. By 1790, the state created programs whereby inmates at the Walnut Street Jail worked on city streets although any wages earned were used to pay prison taxes for housing the inmates. Labor and imprisonment wasn't enough reformation in the eyes of Benjamin Rush and two other key members of the Philadelphia Prison Society, Caleb Lowndes and Robert Vox, both Quakers, prominent businessmen, and philanthropists in Philadelphia. Their perspective included a focus on rehabilitation. Those Quaker roots of kindness and tolerance did much to influence their fellow committee members and Pennsylvania legislatures that rehabilitation was actually a possibility through penance. Focus on a person's morality. Focus on their spirit. Make them penitent, not merely through punishment and labor. And there could be opportunities for true rehabilitation. Their first attempt at prison reform was in the Walnut Street Jail. Hard offenders, typically murderers, were housed in a new wing of the prison that provided solitary confinement, separating these men from the rest of the population and creating a space for penance. They believed isolation promoted penitent behavior. Less heinous offenders were also impacted by reforms at Walnut Street. Men and women were separated, imagine that, and labor programs were instituted. Children were also separated from adults because prior to that, remember, mosh pit, everybody was in general admission, and prison regulations were implemented. Much of these were at the instruction of Caleb Lowndes, who served as a chair of the Walnut Street Prison Inspectors. Around the same time that reformations were happening at Walnut Street Prison, Caleb Lowndes worked with the U.S. Attorney General to revise Pennsylvania's penal code. One of the biggest changes was elimination of the death penalty in all cases, with the exception of premeditated murder. And it blows my mind thinking of these reforms put in place over 230 years ago. Yet today, Pennsylvania has the second highest number of juvenile lifers in the country and one of the highest lifer population in any state in our nation. 
what happened to Benjamin Rush's ideals about penitence and rehabilitation. As both the city and the state grew, Pennsylvania state legislature approved building two new prisons, one in Pittsburgh and another in Philadelphia, because by the 1820s, the Walnut Street Jail had deteriorated to the point that it was practically uninhabitable for prisoners. These new prisons were conceived with the ideal that solitary confinement could lead to rehabilitation. It was a belief that to achieve true reformation of the soul, one must be locked away in solitary thought without distraction of conscience. And thus, Eastern State Penitentiary was born. Designed by architect John Haviland, Eastern State was an arrangement of cell blocks along multiple radius surrounded by an enormous rectangle. When viewed from overhead, the prison looks like the center of a wagon wheel. Each wing is a spike radiating out from a center monitoring block. This design was referred to as hub and spoke. Haviland's design was inspired by English and Irish prisons and asylums from the 1780s. Haviland's design afforded larger cells and enough space that should the Pennsylvania Prison Society wish to reinstate labor as a part of incarceration, there would be room to do so. Labor played an enormous role in the debates over operating Eastern State Penitentiary because labor was an enormous source of debate in general. Ever the land of firsts, in 1827, just two years before Eastern State Penitentiary opened, Philadelphia artists and mechanics formed the Mechanics Union of Trade Associations. There was even a shift in politicians around this time, too. Working men and women were more interested in political candidates who supported universal education and the abolition of imprisonment for debtors. These ideas and changes in culture within the city of Philadelphia had an impact on the men building the future of Eastern State Penitentiary. The cornerstone of Eastern State Penitentiary was laid on May 22, 1823, in a cherry orchard just along the edge of Philadelphia. And that's after years of debate, approvals, rescinded approvals, of two different designs, Haviland's radial prison and a design submitted by architect William Strickland, the architect who designed the octagonal prison under construction out in Pittsburgh at the same time. Ultimately, Haviland's design won out, a prison concept that included cells almost 8 by 12 with cross-ventilation, open-air skylights for natural light that was called the window of God, it was an environment that might actually treat incarcerated persons as human beings. By the following year, over 200 masons, laborers, plus a blacksmith were employed to build Eastern State Penitentiary. And a year later, in 1825, only one cell block was completed. Over the next three years, exterior walls were erected, more cell blocks were completed, slate roofs were put up to replace the temporary wooden ones. But when Eastern State received its first prisoner on October 25, 1829, almost 200 years ago, the prison was unfinished. The first inmate was a man named Charles Williams. He was a farmer serving two years in prison for theft. He was escorted into prison with a hood over his head. The hood protected his anonymity, ensuring no one would see him enter or leave the prison, which would ease his reintroduction into society once he left Eastern State. It also meant he had little opportunity to escape. 
He had no idea how the prison was laid out, as he only saw his own cell. Charles Williams wore the hood until he was within the confines of his chamber. When he entered Eastern State, the prison was missing beds, doors, it was missing locks, and, you know, locks might be important in a prison, and they still needed to install pipes to carry water to Eastern State from the Fairmount Reservoir. Eight more prisoners were received at Eastern State before the end of 1829. They survived the winter seated by six small coal-burning stoves purchased by the prison warden of all people until the first furnace was installed a few months later. Eventually, the cells at Eastern State had central heating. They had running water in the form of a flush toilet. Individual cells were designed to have their own outdoor space surrounded by a 10-foot wall to ensure no one had any thoughts about escaping. Inmates spent 23 hours a day in their cells, in solitary isolation. They were granted access to their small, individual yards twice each day for about 30 minutes, and they were given the opportunity to bathe every other week. I'm sure that smelled wonderful. Just like the hoods they wore when they entered the prison, they were again shrouded in a dark, eyeless hood while taken to and from the bath, never seeing any aspect of the prison but their room, and never seeing one another. Haviland's original design featured 266 cells, and the prison administration decided to expand Eastern State to 400 cells. By the end of 1834, there were 311 cells. Considerable work had been done on blocks 4, 5, and 6, although they weren't yet completed. Block 7 was walled out, the cells had roofs, but the prison yards were still under construction. A new well was installed because the original one was contaminated with lime chloride from toilet backflow in the prison cells. Probably not the best demonstration of indoor plumbing if the toilet water is poisoning everyone by seeping into the well. In 1835, the population at Eastern State was up to 325 men and almost 20 women. That's right, Eastern State Penitentiary was co-ed. Well, not exactly co-ed. The men and women didn't coexist, but the prison did house women. Less than 30 years later, Eastern State was overflowing with over 460 prisoners. Yes, cells were expanded, new blocks were opened, but the prison at that time only offered 472 cells. In a space that large, with that many people, building maintenance became a constant factor. As the earlier blocks experienced disrepair, they were replaced with brick structures. The water supply had to be constantly improved. Additions were built for storage. It was a continuous cycle of people in and out repairing cells, improving gas lighting, and a constant effort keeping Eastern State Penitentiary running. The prisoners weren't the only large population at Eastern State Penitentiary. In 1866, the city of Philadelphia reported about 75,000 visitors to Eastern State that year, which meant over 200 people per day. And it wasn't the prisoners drawing those crowds. Eastern State was an attraction before it became an attraction. An 1852 Philadelphia guidebook reported Tickets of admission can be had on application to any of the inspectors. For the accommodation of strangers, we will state that Mr. Vox's office is in 6th below Chestnut. This gentleman takes pleasure in giving any information in his power respecting his truly noble institution, which, we assure the reader, is well worthy of a visit. Tickets of admission to Eastern State Penitentiary were still being advertised in city guidebooks in 1875. A most Famous visitor at Eastern State Penn was Charles Dickens. 
During a visit to Philadelphia in 1842, one where he also visited with Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens was wholeheartedly against the idea of total solitary confinement. He feared leaving a man alone in isolation with nothing but his thoughts. In his travel journal, American Notes for General Circulation, Dickens wrote of Eastern State Penitentiary, In its intention, I am well convinced that it is kind, humane, and meant for reformation. But I am persuaded by those who designed this system of prison discipline, and those benevolent gentlemen who carry it into execution, do not know what it is they are doing. I hold this slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the body, and because its ghastly signs and tokens are not so palpable to the eye, it extorts few cries that human ears can hear. Dickens' words were a foreshadowing of what was to come, because by 1913, the concept of penitence through isolation, also known as the Pennsylvania system, was abandoned. Even though international delegates from all over the world visited Eastern State Penitentiary in an effort to emulate the approach taken in Pennsylvania, and most of the prisons in the 19th century were based on the structure and culture of Eastern State Penn, it was still doomed. Before we forge ahead into the next era of Eastern State Penitentiary, we're going to take a short podcast promo break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Hey, Twisters. I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about supporting Twisted Philly on Patreon. Patreon support offsets the cost of show research, travel research expenses, and places I visit to share on the show. What up to our newer $5 Patreon supporters who jumped on board over the last few months or recently upgraded their support from $2 to $5? Kathy O., Melissa, Peculiar Mayhem, Kelly P., Heidi, Jennifer M., Mary F., Rebecca, Amanda, Teresa T., Tom the Viking, Mary V., Beryl, Carol, the Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast, and Stat Podcast. Thank you all so much. Your contributions have greatly contributed to the research expenses for the Jordan Anthony Brown episode, the episode about disgusting Eddie Savitz, and two older books that I bought for research about upcoming episodes. I'd also like to share some very grateful what-ups to our $5 Patreon supporters who have been supporting the show at this level for quite a while. Heather K., Rosa, Nicole G., Sharon D., Christina D., and the History Goes Bump podcast. Thank you so much. If you're interested in supporting Twisted Philly on Patreon, let me tell you a little bit about the tiers that are available. For $2 each month, you get an exclusive episode available only to Patreon supporters. And for $5 a month, you get two exclusive episodes plus monthly swag. It could be a sticker, buttons, might be magnets, or even a wristband. Each month, the swag is different, not just the first month you join as a $5 patron. I've also added a $10 tier, which includes bigger merchandise items every few months, and a one-time $20 contribution where you get to choose the topic for an episode in the following month. There are a dozen episodes on Twisted Philly Patreon right now, so when you sign up at any level, you have access to all 12, including the Philadelphia Experiment, 
America's first missing child. Yep, that happened right here in Philadelphia. Plenty of ghost stories. And America's first cult. Yeah, that happened here in Philly, too. I hope you'll consider supporting Twisted Philly on Patreon. You can find links to my Patreon account on any of my social media pages. Hi, this is Hannah from the Film Rose Podcast. Hi, I'm Jen. My name's Vanessa. Hi, my name is Stacy, and I listen to Our Americana because it reminds me how important community is. Because it tells the stories of people and places in small-town America that we'd never get to hear about anywhere else. I love hearing about parts of our country that I didn't even know existed. And the reason I listen to Our Americana is for the stories. Stories of average Americans, stories that I otherwise may have never heard. I liked hearing about the younger generation moving back home to these small towns or moving out of these big cities because they were so passionate about community. The podcast has definitely inspired me to want to visit America. Despite being such a huge nation, it is clearly the people and communities which give it its heart and soul. Not only is Josh a great narrator, but he's a great listener. He's very good at capturing the essence of people in the essence of a small town. Our Americana changes the way I look at America. It's not just my little town with my little struggles. Josh tells stories I didn't even know I needed to hear and gives small town America a platform to shine. I'm Josh Hallmark, the host of Our Americana. I spent six months living in a van, traveling the country in search of what it means to be American. What I found was community and connectivity. And so I created a podcast to celebrate that. And what better place to start than small town America? Whether it's the West Virginia mining town where a gay club is the center of the community, or a seaside village that was adopted by an orphaned orca, or a Minnesota town that was revitalized by a dog. The heart of these stories is always community coming together in spite of their differences for the greater good. America is so much more than what we see on the news, and Our Americana celebrates that. You can listen to Our Americana on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and all your other favorite podcatchers. Hi, I'm Kim. And I'm Felicia. And we're from the Harry Potter Revisited podcast. Each episode is based on the next chapter in the series. We make inappropriate jokes and crass comments along the way. Check out Harry Potter Revisited on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. Bye, Felicia. The total and complete isolation initially established by Eastern State Penitentiary simply wasn't sustainable. Although the prison was originally designed to hold 266 inmates, then expanded to over 300 and close to 500 by the 1860s, in 1913, Eastern State was home to close to 2,000 inmates. Those spacious 8 by 12 foot cells, well, they became cramped when they had to house two or three more inmates at a time. Isolation was abandoned for labor programs, including a weaving factory, a commercial-grade kitchen and bakery that operated 24 hours around the clock, workshops of all kinds, more yard time, inmates interacting with one another, a mess hall where they dined together, so much change, the operation was almost unrecognizable from what it was when it first opened. The type of prisoner changed significantly, too, at Eastern State in the early 1900s. Whereas the prisoners in the 1800s were primarily thieves, 
The turn of the century saw an influx of murderers, rapists, arsonists, and a large population of white-collar criminals arrested for embezzlement and forgery. Eastern State Prison became an amalgamation of old and new. The original stone walls were repaired with cheaper, easier-to-find and easier-to-apply cement, but they still had the high-curved ceilings of the original days of the prison. There were underground cells. Where else could the prison administration create new cell blocks if most of the ground had been accounted for but underground? None of the inmates in the underground cells, also known as the Klondike, saw daylight spilling in through open-air skylights because there weren't even windows in the underground cells. Another change at Eastern State was that it went from co-ed to gentlemen only. For almost 100 years, female prisoners at Eastern State lived in cell block 2 until 1923, when the last female inmate, a woman named Frida Frost, who was serving 24 years in prison for murdering her husband, was relocated. In 1920, Pennsylvania built Muncie Correctional Institution, and eventually Frida was moved there along with other women from Eastern State. I had a chance to look at Frida's intake record. She left home at the age of 13 and attended public school for seven years, which is rather impressive for a woman at that time. Her possessions upon arrest? She had lots of jewelry. There were three bracelets, two earrings, two charms and a breast pin a watch with a chain, a locket with a chain, eight rings, close to one on every finger. She also had 11 spoons, because you never know if you're going to need a spoon in prison. And she had three stones. Now, what are you doing with stones? I guess maybe she thought she could take it all with her. In 1956, the last major update was made to Eastern State Penitentiary, cell block 15, also known as Death Row. This addition was a completely modernized structure, it bore absolutely no resemblance to the original Eastern State Penitentiary. Eastern State was an architectural and cultural marvel when it opened, and about 130 years later, it was barely standing. By 1960, the prison was in a complete state of disrepair. It was too cost-prohibitive to maintain, and in 1971, it was shut down. Nine years later, in 1980, the city of Philadelphia purchased the site with a plan on redeveloping the land, but in 1988, a group called the Eastern State Penitentiary Task Force convinced Mayor Wilson Good to stop the city's redevelopment plans. You remember Mayor Good. He's the one who gave approval for Philadelphia police to drop a bomb on the move compound on Osage Avenue. In 1994, Eastern State Penitentiary was opened as a historic attraction in the city, providing tours of the prison compound that featured education about their historic legacy the reformations that came about as a result of the Pennsylvania Prison Society back in the late 1700s, and some of the famous prisoners who called Eastern State home. One of the most famous inmates was Chicago mobster Alphonse Scarface Capone. Capone made the mistake of traveling through Philadelphia on his way back to Chicago from Atlantic City. He was arrested for carrying a concealed, unlicensed firearm and he was sentenced to serve one year in Eastern State Penn. Now, unlike his fellow inmates, Al Capone was sort of a big deal. He was a celebrity around the prison. And instead of the stark accommodations afforded most prisoners, Capone was able to outfit his cell with all the comforts of home. There's an exhibit today on the prison tour that shows Capone's cell as it was when he lived there almost 90 years ago, with beautiful lamps, oriental rugs, lush bed linens, and a radio so he could enjoy music from the confines of his 8x12 cell. 
He only served eight months of his sentence, unlike many other inmates who were incarcerated at Eastern State Penn. But his infamy as one of America's most notorious gangsters is what makes him stand out from the rest. Speaking of famous inmates, a black Labrador named Pep was incarcerated at Eastern State in 1924. His crime was murder. He murdered the family cat. Pep and the cat he killed were pets of then-Pennsylvania Governor Gifford Pinchot. Pep didn't get life. He got his picture taken as a mugshot with an inmate number as a publicity stunt. Ten years later, in 1934, Eastern State's youngest inmate was incarcerated for second-degree murder, 12-year-old Wilmer Jackson, inmate C9852. I couldn't find any information about him or his crime other than he was the youngest inmate at Eastern State. But his intake photograph is haunting. He's clearly been crying. He's a young African-American man. And you can see the lines of tears streaked on his cheeks. I wonder what little Wilmer did to wind up the youngest inmate at all of Eastern State. A recent exhibit at Eastern State's penitentiary was Prisons Today, a look at the prison system in modern America. Now, our country has the highest rate of incarceration in the entire world. Think about that. Think about all the countries all over the planet, and the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate of any of them. Exhibits change, although many are permanent installations like Al Capone's cell. What I love about Eastern State are the daytime tours. They're full of history and education. You can buy tickets online or at the door, but depending on the day of the week or the season, it may be better to buy your tickets in advance. The daytime tours are called the Voices of Eastern State. It's an audio tour that guides you through the prison and the exhibits, and it's narrated by Steve Buscemi, whom I love. And it's daylight for the most part. While you're taking the audio tour, there are also interactive history experiences where you interact with the Eastern State staff and get a hands-on experience about life in the early days of the prison. That's my jam. History, old crumbling architecture that looks like a demented castle. The buildings are remarkable. Most of them anyway, the original building, certainly. And the entrance to the prison is indeed spectacular. It looks like something out of a fairy tale. Well, maybe if fairy tales had nightmares. The guard towers indeed look like part of an ancient castle. And you feel transported in time when you cross the threshold at Eastern State. Yet you're only a few blocks from the bustling modern city of Philadelphia. It just blows my mind. A few months ago in May... Eastern State opened the abandoned hospital block for the very first time to visitors, and it is a terribly disturbing sight. 15-minute tours throughout the hospital block are available every day as part of the daytime tours. For directions, for tickets, hours of operation, special programs, really all the information you'll need about Eastern State, you want to go to their website at www.easternstate.org. And then... There is the terror behind the walls. <laughs> it's a Halloween haunted house inside a fucking prison. I talked about the Halloween attraction in last year's Halloween episode, Haunted Happenings. If you listened, then you know I do not go in terror behind the walls because I think Eastern Penn is scary as fuck without jump scares and fake blood. But for those who do enjoy those experiences... From everything I've read and from what friends have shared with me, Eastern State Penn is the best haunted Halloween house. They've actually been rated the number one haunted house by Forbes magazine, so that should tell you something. So what will happen if you go to Terror Behind the Walls? There are six different experiences wrapped up in one. 
the infirmary takes you into the old prison hospital block. Lockdown will just try walking past cell after cell with disturbed inmates lurking in the shadows before their cell doors open. The abandoned machine shop seems innocent enough until you realize who it is operating the machines. Breakout was added two years ago, and it's a motherfucking prison break. That's right. You are caught up in a prison break left to find your own way out. Quarantine 4D is another horror element added in 2015 where you have a mind-altering experience. Okay, well, maybe not an actually chemically mind-altering experience, but it comes close. Blood Yard is a brand new experience that can only be described by what looks like a cross between the hills have eyes and the bad guys in Mad Max hunting you in the outdoor yard. I don't know anyone who's done that yet, so I can't tell you with any level of certainty if that's what it is, but that's what it looks like to me, and that looks like a hard case of nope, nope, nope. Like the daytime tours, tickets for Terror Behind the Walls are available online. When you go to the website for Eastern State Pen, you'll see a link at the top of the page for Terror Behind the Walls. And there you can hang out with the psychos and the goblins till your heart's content. I'll be ditching that John before the sun goes down. And the reason I like to roll before the sun goes down is because I believe Eastern State Penitentiary is haunted. For all the talk about prison reform and creating a peaceful environment where inmates could truly practice penitence, there are reports of torture in the days of Eastern State Penitentiary. The first report of prison abuse came in 1835, before the prison was even finished construction and there were very few inmates. Some of the darkest days, though, at Eastern State Penitentiary were during the tenure of Warden Herbert Smith, who ran the prison during 1926 and 1948. There are legends during his reign of something called the Iron Gag. An inmate's hands were tied behind his back and then tied to an iron collar in his mouth. If he moved his hands, even the slightest bit, the ropes would pull on his tongue. We already talked about the underground cells that were completely devoid of light. Imagine spending months, even years, in a black box. No light, no sound just total nothingness. What would that do to someone's psyche? And then there was the mad chair. Prisoners who weren't penitent enough or those who committed some sort of infraction or another would be strapped so tightly in a chair, the straps would cut off their circulation. People would be left there for hours, causing circulatory damage so severe, some inmates had fingers or limbs amputated. Tell me how these tortured souls could move on to whatever met them after death. Cell Block 4 is reported to be one of the most haunted sections of the prison. In the 1990s, a man named Gary Johnson was working in Cell Block 4, maintaining old locks, when he said a force gripped him so tightly he couldn't move. He felt what he described as negative energy exploding from one of the cells, and he claimed to see faces appear on cell walls. There are stories of footsteps echoing in the hallways and up along the catwalk above the cells. People hear whispers throughout the penitentiary. Even the shadow of a guard has been spotted in one of the guard towers. Ghost Hunters, the paranormal investigative team from Sci-Fi, is just one organization that has investigated Eastern State Penitentiary. They camped out at Eastern State to either prove or debunk these ghost sightings. 
The team documented a shadowy figure moving across cell block 12, which is another area where visitors have said they've seen a ghost-like figure. Jason and Grant from Ghost Hunters returned to the prison two nights in a row and again captured the moving shadow in cell block 12. With legends and ghost stories like these, especially the one about cell block 4, there's no way I'm wandering a prison when it's a haunted attraction. But in all fairness, Terror Behind the Walls brings in considerable funding to maintain the prison and ensure the legacy of history and education continues to thrive at Eastern State Penitentiary. I hope you all enjoyed delving into the history behind one of America's most famous prisons. And if you do take a daytime tour or visit Terror Behind the Walls, be sure to let me know what you thought about it. I'd like to thank Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and every episode. You can find out more about musician Emmy Sarah on her website at emmysarah.com. That's E-M-M-Y-C-E-R-R-A dot com. And you can download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.